0: James chapter 4 this morning. James chapter 4. I've entitled the message, Slow to Speak and Quick to Listen, basically picking up on what he has already told us in James chapter 1 verse 19. He says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we've been over that part of chapter 1. But it's going to tie in to what's going on in today's passage because he has been talking about where wars come from. And if any of us have ever really thought about the global condition that we live in right now, there are more wars going on than there ever have been. And there are many who are from uh, secular thinking that think that if we just all work together, that we would be able to get rid of the problem of war. There would be peace on earth. And yet, in reality, we don't have any peace on Earth. Even those who are seeking peace many times will do it with threats and violence and mob rule, thinking that if they overturn the current facilities that we have to keep the structure and peace going, that we'll actually be able to fix things. But the reality is is that war doesn't begin with governments. It doesn't begin with nations. War begins with you and I. It begins with our hearts. And if we realistically are at war with God in our hearts, then it's going to create war between us and other people. And he asks in the beginning of chapter 4, where do wars and fights come from among you? And he's not talking to the world. He's not talking to secular governments. He's, not ta- he's talking to the church. He says, well, where do, if there's no peace in the church of God that is led by the king of peace, How can we ever expect there to be peace where there's no king of peace outside of the church? And so let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me, right? And so here we are in James chapter 4 and he says, where do wars and fights come from? He says they come from within us and they come because we have a God problem. We've made ourselves God rather than God be God. And because of that, our goals and our efforts and everything seem to clash even with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, even in the smallest cell of community in marriage, if a husband and a wife are focused on Jesus, then in all reality, whether they're far apart or close together, if they're headed towards Jesus and Him being the goal, pleasing Him in everything that they do, they're going to be working together towards the same end, the same goals, the same purpose. And so, in James chapter 4, he continues, and he says at the end of the, at verse 10 of last week's passage, he says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So, he says there, in verse 7, if you want to be able to be in harmony with one another and get rid of wars among yourselves, in verse 7, he says, therefore, submit to God then resist the devil and he will flee from you. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he calls for repentance. He says, you're dirty. He's calling us dirty when he writes this. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Now, who in here likes to be called a sinner? Who in here likes to be called anything that is construed to be negative? Maybe they might call you a a different team name. Maybe somebody might call you a nickname that you don't like from high school. The reality is none of us like to be spoken ill of. And so he says there, cleanse your hands, you sinners, because that's what the Bible says that we are. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Be broken over the fact that you're broken. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So in that quick review, we find that pride and idolatry are what kindle wars. When we worship something other than God, that kindles war. When we have pride within ourselves and we think ourselves to be better than we actually are in the sight of God, that's where wars start. And what we find out from that passage is that God actually resists those who are prideful, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace. God's riches at Christ's expense God shows us grace, and he loves us despite our wickedness. We don't deserve it. We can't earn God's favor. But here's the thing. God's calling us from last week's passage to humble ourselves, and many of us want to take a shortcut to that. Rather than humbling myself, why don't I just lower everybody else, and then I'll be lifted up? He says, humble yourself, and God will lift you up. But us and our pride, we hear that, and we go, well, that's kind of the hard way. Why don't I just lower the level of everybody else and then I'll lift myself up? We lift ourselves up by how we treat others. It's easier to humble others instead of ourselves. And so as we start the passage this week, that's what he's saying. He says in verse 11, do not speak evil of one another, brethren. Don't speak evil of the brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother judges his brother, speaks evil of the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge. And there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? So again, putting yourself in the place of God, we end up judging others. And the goal is to exalt ourselves at someone else's expense. And I want to point out that if you've ever experienced that, so has Jesus. Jesus said, love your enemies. If you have somebody that speaks evil of you, if, if you want somebody to be able to relate to you, Jesus can. He had people speak evil of him his entire life. Uh, he had siblings, so you know they had spats. You know, he had the religious leaders that were constantly uh, trying to find a way to catch him. And in Matthew chapter 12, verse 9, as Lucy and I were reading our Bible this week, we actually came across a passage that I saw in a different light. Matthew 12, chapter 12, verse 9. It says there that Jesus had departed from the place that he was, and he went into the synagogue. And behold, there was a man who had a withered hand. And they asked him, saying, "'Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath?' And they asked him that in order to accuse him of wrongdoing. If He, he couldn't win this, this thing they're asking. If he said, yes, it's lawful, then he, he loses the argument because they're saying he's working on the Sabbath, he's breaking the Ten Commandments. But if he says, no, it's not lawful, then he's basically saying, this guy's just going to have to remain as he is, even though I have the power to heal him. And so then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep and if it falls into a pit on the sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out verse 12 of how much more value then is a man than a sheep now even jesus says that people are worth more than animals so in our day and age where animals many times are treated better than human beings we could see jesus's opinion on this that man is created in the likeness and in the image of god and so because of that he has worth beyond animals But he says there, of how much more value is a man than sheep, therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. (laughs) He's telling them their question is a little ridiculous. Is it lawful to help people on the Sabbath? Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. And the Pharisees immediately went out, plotted against him how they might destroy him. Some of your translations might say that he immediately, they they saw him help and heal a man that couldn't use his hand, completely restore it miraculously, and because their hearts were so hard, their first goal was to find a way to kill him. They wanted to kill the good that was going on. They wanted to kill the man who had helped this man, even though they weren't able to help him. And so that's what sin does. It taints your perspective. So, It's going to go on to verse 21, but let's stop there for now. So we go back to James, and we see that Jesus experienced this treatment. He had people speak evil of him. They called him a blasphemer. Steve, if you could give me the next slide, please. So verse 11 and 12, he tells us, um, don't speak evil of one another. Don't speak evil of one another because you make yourself a judge. Now, in the case of the word judge here, he's saying we eternally judge people if we're not careful. Now, there is a judgment that as Christians we are supposed to exercise. And we use the word judge, but really the idea is a fruit inspector. Because our lives as Christians, we are supposed to produce fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self control, of which there is no law against. But there are also fruit of the works of the flesh in our lives that will show up when there's an unhealthy heart. And so we as believers need to not only hold each other accountable, but notice when there's bad fruit being produced. But the problem is, many times when we notice in each other that there is bad fruit being produced, Rather than seeking to help that person get better, we, se- we, tend to, uh, we tend to shoot our wounded. We tend to kick people when they're already unhealthy. God's purpose in us inspecting fruit in one another's life is not to harm each other, but it's actually to heal each other. And, and in a polarized society like we are in, where people are either on this extreme end of an issue or they're on this extreme end of the issue. We never try to bring each other to the middle. We always go, I'm not moving, and if you don't come over here, then you're evil. The problem with that is that it's, it's not Christ-like. Jesus was very stout and stubborn with the religious leaders, but his heart was, he still spoke to them. He still revealed to those men whose hearts were hard, who wanted to kill Him, He still revealed to them, yes, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But in Matthew chapter 7, we have Jesus' perspective on judgment. Now, many times, even unbelievers will quote where Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. And they'll quote that, but they won't know anything else in the Bible. They'll quote that because they want you to leave them alone, and I get it. I used to quote the same thing, but he says in Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you, you will be judged by the same measure, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. You're a hypocrite. He says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the brother's eye. So what does he say not to deal with the speck in your brother's eye? Because I think that's a lot of the ways that we take it. Hey, don't mess with me. I'm doing fine. You're not supposed to judge me. But the problem is, is that if someone has a speck in their eye, not only is it hurting them, but it's going to get infected. And if you leave that speck in there long enough, they could lose their eye. They won't be able to see things clearly. They won't be able to do their job. They won't, they, not only will they be unhealthy, but they'll be harmed. And so spiritually speaking, we see specks in each other's eyes. If you're around other believers long enough, you're going to see the nasty. You're going to see the brokenness. You're going to see the hurt. You're going to see their weak points. And we have two options. We could say, I don't want anything to do with them anymore. Or we could say, hey, I want to help them heal. Here's the problem. We live in a small community. I know you guys don't know that, but you're going to run into that person again. And then what? Are you just going to cut them off for the rest of your life? Or are you going to love them? Now, we think of love as as extending love to people that love us. You agree with everything that I do, therefore I love you. But that's not love. You don't have to love that person. You already do. They're you. Jesus said, love your enemies. Love those who speak, un, un, those who speak evil of you. He said anybody can love people that love them. That's not Jesus. That's, you can do that naturally. You can do that without the Holy Spirit. But to love those who are against you, to love those who would even point the finger at you, that's the love of Jesus. And so he says, deal with your own sin first. So when we see the speck in someone else's eye, that's an opportunity for us to examine our own lives and say, is that speck in my eye too? Do I have that same problem? We oftentimes see in others the weaknesses and the sins that we ourselves struggle with. That's why we're so harsh with them. But if you have had something taken out of your eye, if any of you have ever had something in your eye, you know that it's the most painful and yet it's the easiest to look over and see. Uh, When you have something in your eye, it just irritates you and everything else seems amplified. Every other problem seems like it's the worst, absolutely the worst thing. But when you've had someone come close to your eye, if you've ever gone to the eye doctor and they've had to pull something out of your eye, you have sympathy all of a sudden for the other people that have something in their eye. You see something in their eye, and it just makes you go, oh, I remember, oh, ah, you know, it's just, there's empathy there. There's compassion. And then you're more likely to be sensitive with them. I've had people before, I've had something in my eye, and I go, get over it. It's just a speck. It's just dust. But once you experience, you go, wow. That's, that's bad. You want me to drive you somewhere? I mean, we could walk, I got eye wash, you know, you just anything to help them because you know how irritating it is. And so the idea is, is if you've had your sin dealt with and Jesus has healed you of it, you're able to then help others deal with their speck. Many times their stuff really isn't that big of a deal and ours is. And so get busy obeying the law for yourself instead of trying to decide whether or not it applies to you. When he says that in James chapter 4, you judge the law, you become a judge of the law, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law anymore, but you're a judge of the law. Many times when we start sin-sniffing in other people's lives, uh, we, start, we become the police. And, and the reality is, when we become the police, we stop inspecting our own lives. We we spend all of our efforts and energies getting the magnifying glass out and looking in other people's lives, watching their Facebook feed, doing whatever it is you do. We get nosy, become nosy Nancys, and we try to fix everybody else. And in the meantime, we're a jacked up mess because we stopped looking in the mirror. And so he says, don't judge each other and become a judge over everybody else and a judge of the law. It, we dis, We start becoming those that go... You know, uh, this law really applies to that person. You ever read your Bible and go, man, so-and-so needs to hear that. I've done it. Be careful. That's the flesh. Avoiding what you need to deal with and starting throwing dust in the air and distracting and looking everywhere else. Get busy doing what God's shown you to do. And if you'll get busy doing what God's showing you to do, then you will be able to deal with others. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, And I'm probably getting ahead of myself because that's what I do. But in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul speaks on this. He says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Well, that's obvious, right? I can help them because I've been through it. But then he says this. And if you're not careful, you can read over it. He says, considering yourself also, lest you be tempted. When you go to help people get out of their sinful situations or to repent, realize that you are also going to be likely to be tempted to do the same thing, even though you just helped them. He says, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, this isn't the idea of somebody that's going out and obviously sinning and rejecting and rebelling against the commandments of the Lord. This is someone who is trying to do right. And because of this weakness that they have, they're overtaken by something that they are likely to be overtaken by. It's something that they've always struggled with. He says, restore them in meekness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. And so what are we supposed to do? We're not supposed to sin-sniff. We're not supposed to judge each other, but we're supposed to help each other. And, and really, we are supposed to follow the law. Jesus said, if you fulfill the royal law, you fulfill it in this. You love God above anything else. You let him have his work complete in your life. And then you love your neighbor like you love yourself. And we saw that in James chapter 1, verse 25 where he says this, he who continues into the perfect law of liberty, excuse me, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but instead a doer of the work, an obedient servant, this one will be blessed in what he does. Not in what he knows, but in what he does. So the question that one Pharisee asked Jesus was, okay, love my neighbor. Who is my neighbor? and I would submit to you that he was asking, who do I have to love? He was trying to narrow it down because uh, that's a lot of work to love lots of people. So why don't you shorten the to-do list for me? Does that apply to so-and-so? Because, I don't know, we start to limit the love of God flowing through us. But if the person is really uh, doing evil, it's not our job just to point it out we're supposed to be part of the solution. So in John chapter 13, we have an example of this. Uh, the disciples are all sitting at a table. They've just taken Passover. Jesus is once again telling them that he's getting ready to die for the sins of the world. And this is this classic example of the love of God that gets messy. And in John chapter 13, let me see the, set the scene for you. They have all come into this home. They're sitting around a table and they're eating together. And we're not talking about like sitting at one of those like barista tables where it's like this high off the ground. You got the cool seats that sit up high. We're talking about get low. We're talking about like a table you'd see in a children's church classroom. It's like this high off the ground. I've sat at one. It's great until people take their shoes off. You don't have your feet under the table because who can sit like that on the ground? You're actually sitting. I'm going to do it because I have to. You actually have to sit at the table. Ugh like this, and you sit essentially like this. So if you've got somebody sitting next to you, over here is not the place to be, especially if they got my feet. Well, I was sitting next to, many of you might know him, and he'd laugh if I, he heard me telling a story, but went to Israel two years ago. We sat down at this place called Abraham's tent, and you want to pick who you sit next to at Abraham's tent, because we've been walking all day. And so Justin takes off his size 12s and I sit right next to him thinking I like Justin. All of a sudden I don't like Justin no more cuz I cannot stand dust inch. But I'm not trying to help him fix it. I'm just saying, man, you stink. And many times because we get close to believers, that's what we do. We get close, people let us get close. I've been down here for six years, and at year five, people finally started letting us be involved in their lives because they started to trust us. When people start to trust you, it takes a long time to earn that if you're not their family. The body of Christ is full of people that aren't related physically, and so people allow you into their lives, and then you make the mistake of going, man, you stink. You've lost five years of work, right? So the reality is we sit down, they sat down at this table in John 13. All of these guys came in, they're dudes. They didn't take their, you know, they follow any convention. There weren't ladies present, probably. I think there were, but these guys were rough. They were fishermen, they were zealots, they they were stinky. And they walk into the house and nobody was there to wipe their feet. They didn't have doormats. The lowest slave in the household would sit by the door and wash your feet as you took your shoes off as you came in. You're you're Air Jerusalems. wearing sandals, walking around in uh, probably poop. I haven't said that in a while on a Sunday morning. You're walking around, you step in stuff, you walk in, you're going to have a meal. So it wasn't just their smell, it was whatever they walked in. And they sit down, they're having a meal, and at the end of the meal, Jesus gets up, having noticed that their feet stank, He girded himself with a towel. He took the form of a slave and he washed their feet. And you know it was bad because Peter said, no, 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 don't wash my feet. You don't know what I've been walking in. And he said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you can have no part of me. He said, well, then wash my whole body. He goes, no. (laughs) Peter, you just need your feet washed. You know, (laughs) let's not get crazy here. But he saw that they stunk. He saw that they'd been walking through garbage he sees that we've been walking in sin for the bulk of our life, and he doesn't say, you stink, I don't want nothing to do with you. He says, let me clean you. And sometimes he calls us to be a part of that foot washing. Now we don't do foot washing here. Many of you might have been around that. But Jesus cleanses us of the stuff that we're uncomfortable with people knowing. Think back, if you're married, think back to when you first got married, and your wife or your husband you, you like, you, hey, close the door. I'm going to the restroom. All the stuff that you're like, I don't want anybody around. And then you get a few years in, you're like, ah, here, here I am. You know, but, but we don't like to let people into the reality is that we're, we're people. We still make smells and we still have problems and we have bad habits. We don't like to let people into that. But Jesus knows about all that stuff at the beginning. and He wants to help us out with it. And He wants you and I to help each other, to build each other up in the faith, and that takes allowing people into your weak spots. So when people allow you to see their brokenness, don't be quick to point it out. Be quick to help them in it. Be quick to help them out of it gently. And so there's a blessing attached to this. So that said, we're going to move on because I've taken too much time in that. Planning. James chapter 4, verse 13, he says, "'Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, we'll spend a year there, we'll buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, "'If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that.'" But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, my question for you this morning is Is planning bad? I don't think that planning is a bad thing. I think it's wise. The Bible teaches that planning is wise. Um, But the problem that we have with planning is that many times we get into planning mode and then we will not deviate. This is the plan, this is what we're doing, I don't care. We've already filled in the calendar. I don't know if you can see it, but I put like a calendar up there and the lady's writing on it. There's sticky notes on the side and every day is full. And I get that. We're at a spot right now where we have two kids and one of them's getting ready to be in kindergarten. Our life is about to get actually busy. And no matter what season you're in, you are never less busy than you are right now. You're the least busy you'll ever be. Now, Dave might disagree, but he fills his calendar too. People that are retired fill their time too. You, you always find time to do what you want to do. So is planning bad? No. The problem is, is that we get prideful. We get arrogant about our planning and we decide, you know what? My plans are obviously God's plans because uh, he, why would he disagree with my plans? He knows I got kids. He knows I got a job. He knows that I got family commitments. He knows that I got chores to do. He knows I got my workout schedule. He knows I got whatever it might be. We've all got stuff going on. Little Dribblers has just gone through a season of your Saturdays are now planned for you, right? And sometimes they go long, and sometimes they go short, and sometimes they just don't end. And it's nice out, and you could be mowing the grass, and all these things. But the problem is we boast about our plans. Now, I looked up the word boast, the word boast means this, to talk with excessive pride and self-satisfaction about one's achievements, possessions, or abilities. We like to boast in our ability to plan. I tell you what, I can fit more in a day because we got the Google calendars, we got all these things that we, we hey, we can make it an hour here, we can make it three hours there, and then by the end of the day, we'll be able to go to bed early. And many times we boast in those plans and they work. I wouldn't say that there's a whole lot of rest in them, and some of that is unavoidable. But what's wrong with boasting about our plans? Well, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus spoke to this. He told a parable about a rich man. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. One of the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I, that's the first step in his wrong assumption. He started with the I thing. I will do this. I will pull down my barns. I will build bigger barns. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I, notice how many times he says, I, I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the problem with boasting in our plans is that we never take into account that God has plans. You know, who is the one that gives us bumper crops in the years where we do well? It's the Lord. What is his purpose? Is his purpose. Now, in some cases, this man's plan might have been of the Lord, but he speaks nothing in there about the, the man seeking the Lord concerning the abundance. Have you ever thought that? My boss gave me a bonus. I wonder what God wants me to use it for. No, many times, or I got a good tax return this year. I wonder why God made sure that I we had more than we need. We don't think that. We think, wow, I've got all this list of things we want to do. Let's do them. And we don't consider the Lord. That's where the arrogance comes from. We think that we know how long our lives are. And then our society is built on the fact that we get to retire one day. But does God have retirement in mind for you? And the reality is he might. And so this isn't a condemnatory towards preparation, but the other side of it is he might not. And then what? Is God anti-retirement sometimes? I think sometimes he is. And so the reality is this man had these bumper crops. So instead of seeking out where he might give them to people that don't have any crops, who might've gone through blight or mildew or problems, his first thought is, hey, me. And then he's gonna build bigger barns to save up all those crops. And in the meantime, there might be people that could use it right now. He's saving for a future that isn't guaranteed and he's holding that, those bumper crops away from those who guaranteed have a need right now. And so we have to be careful that we don't plan things based on our own understanding. Our tendency is to boast in our plans and to forget God's plans and Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 through 6 instructs us to avoid this. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and lean not on your own understanding." In all of your ways, acknowledge the Lord, and he will direct your path or your plans, your future. We don't know how many days we have left. That's just a reality. But God does, and he knows the best way to use what he's given us. So who does know where your path or your life is headed? He says, pray if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. And For those of us who are busy, and we do live in a society that kind of boasts in our busyness even sometimes, the reality is we still have a lot more freedom than we would like to admit. Um, I put up there for you a quote I found You are only confined by the walls that you build yourself. You are only confined by the walls that you build yourself. So if you have no time to allow the Lord to direct your path or change your plans, I would submit to you that maybe, again, you have a God problem. You're His. He's not yours. Bless my plans today, Lord. I'm on autopilot, is not the prayer of a righteous person. What the prayer of a righteous person is, Lord, this is what I got planned today, but I'm open to being led by you because you died for my salvation. You died so that I could now live and that the Son of God could live through me. What does that mean? And so, He continues on in verse 17 and says, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. So I have here for you, see, sometimes I read these passages and I'm like, man, this is harsh, but it's actually a call to correction. His plans are specific for you. Did you know that? God has specific plans for the believer? When our hearts are set on our own ways, we miss out on what God has planned. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we all quote verse 8 and 9, which says, "...for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast." But then in verse 10, he says something that we can easily skip over. He says, "...we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How do you prepare things beforehand? You plan. So we're always worried about what we need to plan, and yet God has already planned your entire life. He's got things that he wants you to walk in. Did you know that? But what are those plans? I can't tell you for you. I know I I can barely tell me for me most days. But I know his plans. Are, are to be worked out. And that when we work out his plans, when we actually walk in the things he's prepared beforehand, there's a lot of joy. Because then we can't boast in ourselves. We start boasting about the fact that God is using us. And so God's plans don't always make practical or logical sense. And if you turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 8, I'm going to briefly tell you a story about a man by the name of Philip. Philip was one of the disciples of Jesus, and after Pentecost, all the men were scattered by persecution. They were scattered by painful experiences. They were scattered because their lives were now at stake because they followed Jesus of Nazareth. And so that scattering caused them to be sent out to plant the seed of the gospel, just like those dandelions you're about to be upset about for the next three months, Those little things are going to pop up. They're going to be beautiful and yellow. And then all of a sudden, they're going to have those paratroopers on them. That's what we call them. And they're going to blow by the wind, and they're going to scatter more dandelions. And some of you will lose your minds over it. It'll be okay. They'll be gone in a couple months. But then what we find out is they're scattered by persecution. It says in verse 4 of chapter 8 of Acts, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word of God. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things that he spoke, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was a great joy in the city, not in the church, not in his local neighborhood, not in his subdivision, but in the entire city. There's a revival breaking out. And when we see through the rest of this chapter, specific things happen with specific individuals. But as revival is breaking out and people are starting to follow Jesus and they're repenting of their sins, they're getting rid of their idols, they're deciding to walk with Christ, the church is being built up. So here's what we would think. I need to buy a house. I need to plant a church here. And we need to just get together every week and we need to see the gospel continue to spread. But in reality, for Philip, that was not God's plan for him. God's plan is seen in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, stay here, revival's going great. No, he says, arise, go towards the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and he went. Now what you don't know about this, if you're not familiar with the territory, is that he's just been called from a revival in a huge city, and then God says, I want you to go to the desert, but, but I'm being used here, and look at all the people I'm reaching. And God says to Philip, I want you to reach one person. I want you to go where there's no one except one person that's going to affect an entire region in Ethiopia. So we get there in verse 26. He says, he arose and he went, he obeyed. He was guided by the Spirit of God to leave revival and go to the desert. Behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, he he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip, again, obeys. He ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. I don't know about you guys, I don't read in cars. This dude's in a chariot reading the Bible. He's hungry for the word of God. He's like bouncing around, reading, and he's reading out loud. When was the last time you read the Bible when it wasn't a comfortable spot? When was the last time you read the Bible out loud? There's power in that. So he's reading the Bible out loud, and he said, how can I, unless, excuse me, so Philip ran to him, and he said to him, do you understand what you're reading? Philip understood that if he was sent here, it must be for a reason, And and this man's reading the Bible, and he says, do you understand it? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this, so I wonder If this is God's specific answer to a prayer that this man riding in the chariot said, God, I don't get this. Send help. Now, God can miraculously whisper in your ear and tell you things. But he wanted to use a person. So he sent Philip from this revival to the desert to speak to one man and to give him simple understanding in Scripture and to read the Bible with him to help him understand He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opened out his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask of you, of whom does the prophet say this of himself or of some other man? And Philip opened his mouth and beginning in the scripture, preached Jesus to him. And as they went down the road, they came to some water the eunuch said, See, here is water. The eunuch's response is faith. Man, God must really want me to believe in Jesus because he sent you here from where? And you're just here to read the Bible to me? God's hand on Philip's life and on this eunuch. And so he's moved to faith in this instance, and he's baptized immediately. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, verse 38. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, look at this, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And Philip was found at Azotus. So Philip was someone who was willing to be led by the Spirit, and it caused him to be taken away from where he thought he might be needed, but recognized that if God wants to call me away, he's going to send somebody else to help this guy. Here's the reality though. The Lord is constantly dropping things in your life. I guarantee it that are divine interruptions. To us, they're interruptions. To him, they're a detour from our plans. But the problem is when we focus so much on our own plans. Now, I'm saying all this as a man who works 40 hours a week, who leaves town, leaves my family, wants to be home, Has responsibilities outside of just being a pastor. I'm not saying this to you in a vacuum. We all have things that we have to schedule. We don't get to call off work to just run and go do whatever. But there are times where the Lord speaks something specifically to you and says, You need to take today off, so and so needs to hear from you. Or text so and so, they're hurting. And it's not coincidence. God cares about individual people, and He has your ear, and if you're willing to hear, He's going to use you. It's not about you anymore. It's about all the people that God wants to reach through you. The question is, are you willing to lay aside your plans to fulfill His plans? Are you willing to be interrupted when you've got X, Y, and Z coming up to say, you know what? I'm going to give this to the Lord right now. He's got a reason for it. Is it possible he did and you were unwilling because it required a detour? Is it possible that God's speaking to you about people he wants you to reach out to and you're just too busy? James chapter 4 verse 17 says, To him who knows and does not do what he knows he's supposed to do, it's sin. It's missing the mark. It's missing out on a blessing. You're getting robbed if you don't just heed that voice but I don't want to stop there because I don't want this to be condemnatory. Is it possible that you didn't know it was him? Is it possible that you are not used to hearing the voice of the Lord? You're not at that maturity level yet. You didn't know that God speaks to individual people. And so you just were like, man, I don't know why I'm thinking of so-and-so, but I got, all right, anyway. And then you just move on. It happens. Not all of us recognize that God speaks to us. Not all of us have read that chapter in Acts chapter 8. And so, if that's you, and you want to mature in your walk with the Lord, if He tells you to do something, and you're not sure whether or not it's Him, and it seems to be in line with what God does, do it. What's the worst that could happen? You took a step of faith, somebody got loved on, it wasn't the Lord, He's still going to use it. It's worth the step of faith. The mature Christian life is willing to be led by the Holy Spirit. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse seven says, we walk by faith, not by sight. So it may not make sense. But also, of course, I didn't read this passage, but in first Samuel three, a young man named Samuel was actually given up by his parents to be a servant in the house of the Lord. And he lived there from a young age with the high priest at the time, Eli. And Eli and Samuel are sleeping one night And Samuel wakes up in the middle of the night and says, Samuel, Samuel. So he gets up and does what you would do if you heard your voice in the middle of the night. He finds the one person in the building. He says, what do you need? And Eli says, I didn't say anything. Go back to bed. So then he's laying there. He goes back to sleep. He wakes up. The Lord says, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel doesn't, he's not used to hearing the voice of the Lord. He gets up. He walks in. He says, what do you want? And Eli says, I didn't call your name. So this happened several times, and finally the third time, Eli stops and goes, the Lord's speaking to him. Now, in those days, no one was hearing from the Lord because there was so much sin going on. Eli had allowed his sons to get into so much sin that the name of the Lord was being blasphemed. So the Lord said, I'm not going to talk to you anymore. You're not listening anyway. And so Samuel's hearing the voice of the Lord. Eli finally figures out that's what's happening. He says, go back to your bed." the Lord is speaking to you. When he speaks your name, respond and said, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. He teaches him to respond to the Lord with an openness to be obedient to whatever he's going to show him. Now, we find out later is that the Lord's going to prophesy against Eli and his sons, and Samuel's going to become the next prophet of the nation. But Samuel responds to the Lord, and then he tells Eli the hard thing. Hey, Eli, I know you're like, the one I'm serving, but the Lord's not happy with you. Can you imagine if the Lord told you to tell your boss, hey, uh, you're not doing things right. You need to repent. You know, that would be a humbling experience, but he's obedient. So my point is, is that the Lord speaks to us so that we can speak to others. So last passage, John chapter 10. Does Jesus still speak to us today? That was an Old Testament example, and if it's just in the Old Testament, and Jesus doesn't speak about it, and then the epistles, the letters, don't speak about it, I don't think it's a hill we can die on. But James is writing about it. We just read a passage in the Old Testament, two of them, so let's go to what Jesus has to say, and in John chapter 10, verse 22, this is what it says. It was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch... And the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you really are the Christ, or in the Hebrew it's Mashiach or Messiah, if you're really the one that the Old Testament has told us is coming to deliver Israel, is what they're saying, then just tell us plainly. <laughs> there was many occasions where they said this. Just, just get down to the brass tacks. And Jesus answered them and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of his sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and look at this, they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall they, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. But did you notice what he said? Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Of course, James has been talking over and over about faith without works to follow it. It's dead faith. So let me ask you this morning, are you the person that plans so much that they're unwilling to be flexible when the Lord says go the other direction, or go in the same direction, but for a different reason? And then my next question is, or is it possible that you didn't know it was him speaking? Let me encourage you this morning. The Lord is speaking. He is telling you. I'm just learning this now as a 12-year-old Christian, but the Lord does care deeply about all of us, and he does use us to speak in the lives of others, believers and non-believers. Don't quench the Spirit. Don't ignore his call to go and say the simple thing or the hard thing or the good thing or to just walk with somebody through sorrow or through sin that they're trying to get past and the consequences. He will use you if you are willing. Jesus' sheep know his voice and they follow him. The other thing is, maybe you're here today and you're not a follower. Maybe you're somebody that doesn't know the voice of the Lord and it's simply because you don't know him. Let me let me encourage you. He wants to know you and he wants to speak to you and he wants to bring you out of your stinky feet stage. (laughs) He wants to deliver you from your sin. He wants to give you eternal life. He wants to give you a life where you can live with him now. So, Father, we thank you for this admonition, this encouragement, in some ways, this rebuke from James. James knew it firsthand. He was your brother, Lord. And uh, he didn't believe in you his entire life. And yet after the resurrection, he saw you. He responded. He repented and became this bold leader of the faith who said the hard right thing. And so, Father, help us to be those that don't speak evil of one another, even within our hearts. Murder begins within the hearts. We have the power of death and life in our tongues. Help it. Help us to use what we see in people to deal with our own sin and then to help them to restore them to fellowship with the Lord. And if it's us that needs restored to fellowship with the Lord, help us to have a humbleness to realize that we are not perfect and we do need help. And in the same token, Lord, help us not to be those who boast about our plans so much that we ignore you. Forgive us for ignoring you. Forgive us for not responding in faith and just loving people when you give us that nod. Lord, help us to be so sensitive to what you would have us do that we'd be willing to go anywhere and do anything. Just you just saying, hey, it's time to go. Hey, it's time to text. Hey, it's time to reach out to so-and-so. They need me. Lord, let us be your hands and feet. We love you. We thank you for sending people into our lives who have been your hands and feet, who have restored us gently, who have loved us when we were unlovely, who continue to love us when we're unlovely. Lord, thank you for sending feet washers into our lives. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.